All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to be talking to you from New York City on this, the 25th day of February 2020. And we do like to remind you that I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com. Chen Lin's letter as well. We like to tout Chen. Uh, what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Go to chenpicks.com. And uh, I want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows of the Voice America Business Channel. And I also encourage you to send along comments, whatever they may be, negative, positive, whatever. Send them along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number for Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors because without them, there would be no show. Our sponsors for this week's show, Eli Gold Royalties, Great Bear Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Lion One Metals, Novo Resources, and Sitka Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Coronavirus and Credit, A Perfect Storm. Alistair McLeod, Quinton Henning, and John Kaiser, my guests this week. Americans long ago stopped worrying about federal deficits because new money can be always printed and there is no need to worry about too many dollars being printed because the common belief is that because the U.S. owns the world's reserve currency, the entire world not only needs dollars now, but will forever need them. Those who argue this cannot see any reason uh, why that would not continue and why there would be any change to that. Uh, But history demonstrates that no fiat currency lasts forever. Actually, the U.S. dollar has now lasted about as long as many of the other reserve currencies over the past uh, several hundred years. Alistair McLeod uh, will be with me in the second half of today's show to explain why he thinks the dollar's status as reserve currency could be nearing its end. Alistair believes uh, that even before the eruption of the coronavirus, uh, he he saw a bla- you know before anyone saw the black swan the coronavirus that were uh, that is uh, visiting us right now. Alistair thought that we were in uh, some some big trouble from a credit perspective in any event long before this. And I was just uh, watching Bloomberg News before I came down here uh, to do my show, and uh, it seemed to be that generally the idea of most of the guests was, oh this is a black swan. There was no problem whatsoever uh, until. The coronavirus uh, came about. Well, that's certainly not the position of Alistair McLeod, as you'll hear in the second half of today's show. He thinks that uh, the coronavirus is likely to, to trigger what was an underlying problem to start with. And uh, uh, we'll hear some more ideas about that, uh, hopefully from John Kaiser in just a minute. Uh, before we get to John, uh, we'll be talking to Quentin Henning. Um, he, he'll be with me uh, right after their first commercial break. 
to give us an update on the exploration uh, progress that uh, Irving Resources is making in that very unique project with anticipated value coming not just from the narrow high-grade veins, uh, gold veins, but the surrounding host rock, which is used by Japanese smelters uh, as flux. So all Irving will need to do, actually, once they start mining, if they start mining, is load the host rock containing the gold on a ship and send it to the smelters with no need to build a mill or getting uh, paid and, and getting paid for the host rock. Irving believes his chances of building a, a very profitable mine, one or more, in Japan are very good. And it has a couple of major mining companies like uh, Newmont and Sumitomo working alongside of it to make this happen. So if you are at all interested in the junior mining sector, I, I think you won't want to miss what Quentin Henning has to say right after our first uh, commercial break. But right now, I'm happy to tell you, you won't have to wait because John Kaiser is with me right now. John Kaiser... Um, he publishes Kaiser Research Online, and you can go to kaiserresearch.com, Kaiser Research, that's K-A-I-S-E-R, research.com, uh, to catch up with John and to uh, hopefully sign up for his newsletter. Thanks for joining me, John. Jay, it's a pleasure to be on your show. It's always good to have you. We should do it more often, no doubt about it. Uh, let, let me ask you your thoughts about this coronavirus, because that is all the talk now, and it is, uh, certainly does seem to be a very serious issue. The coronavirus, I think, is, is very destabilizing for the global economy. We already had in the last few years the America First uh, trade war, uh, which was a decoupling of uh, the U.S. economy uh, from, from the rest of the world, an attempt to reshore manufacturing. Uh, China right now, it's out of control. Nothing's moving. These quarantines have stopped the productive capacity. Uh, its own businesses, their, their own debts are piling up. Uh, there's an implosion happening in China, which potentially threatens the Communist Party's leadership of that country. Now, we may be far away from all this, and we may be able to stop the coronavirus from getting a proper foothold here and uh, creating an epidemic, but the economic consequences are unavoidable. The supply chains, they are still globalized. Uh, a lot of stuff is not coming to America that American companies need to make stuff. Uh, uh, we're also going to see stuff that we normally import from China suddenly be not available, so you'll see very you see price rises in the stores. That's going to make the people very unhappy. The market, the big market, is finally recognizing that the economic consequences are not going to be brief and, and, and gone by April. Uh, so we're starting to see the sell-off in the big equity markets. And all this uncertainty about what it all leads to is going to keep driving interest in gold. And I still have the view that gold's going to reprice into the $2,000 to $3,000 range uh, simply to hedge against all this uncertainty that's now uh, happening around the world. Uncertainty, certainly I would expect with all of this uncertainty, uh, not to mention the credit markets, which uh, Alistair will be talking to us about second half of today's show, there's likely to be a lot more money printed as well, but I think you see the instability as the key factor. Yes, and and of course, uh, the, the, the sovereign bonds, they're going to keep lowering the interest rates. So we're going to get down to zero in, in the United States. We're already in negative yields in, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in Europe. Uh, and all of that makes gold much more attractive. Now, there's been a huge corporate bond 
creation binge in the last seven years. And those are all linked to the ability of the companies to make the underlying payments. We could see the yields of corporate bonds go through the roof as that crashes. And, you know, the resource sector is a tiny fraction of the total uh, asset base in the world. And it doesn't take much to funnel money into the space that I like, the resource juniors, which are leveraged to the price of gold, uh, to have a profound impact on a space that's been in a bear market for eight years. No, no doubt about it. Well, uh, certainly, you know, if you can find a way to turn negatives into positives, that's that's uh, what we want to try to do. And I think gold certainly offers that that possibility during some rough times. And as you know, as well as anyone, John, if you pick the right juniors, uh, you can do better than just buying the bullion for sure. So you have a couple that you wanted to mention. I think Azimut is one that's a, a Quebec exploration company. Tell us uh, what you like about that one. Okay, these two companies, are, neither of them needs a significantly higher gold price to get into mm-hmm. the money big time. Azimut uh, tripled in January from $0.50 cents to $1.50. It's been as high as a couple bucks when it released results for the Elmer project in the James Bay lowland. Mm-hmm. And this is a new style of uh, mineralization, more typical of the Abitibi Greenstone Belt uh, type of deposits. It's high grade. It has lots of vertical extent. They've just uh, tested a tiny footprint of it. They'll be putting out an IP survey uh, for 2,500 uh, meters of strike, hopefully by PDAC, where we'll see, wow, how much, how often does this repeat? So this is an emerging discovery in Quebec. They just attract $6 million at a significant premium to the market from a, an undisclosed strategic investor. And we've already got a huge area around at stake this as juniors realize, oh, Here's the type of deposit that can work fabulously at whatever gold price we currently have. So this is a story definitely to watch whether or not uh, gold uh, blasts through $2,000, as I think it will. Mm-hmm. So I see you on the cake if that happens, I suppose. But what about Galway is the other one? And that's one that I cover as well. Uh, really like to hear what you have to say about Galway Metals. Now, Galway Metals owns the Clarence Stream Project, which was discovered around 2000 by Mac Watson's Free West Resources. Mm-hmm. Galway picked it up in 2016, paid uh, you know, almost $5 million for it, and it's in New Brunswick. Uh, it's got high-grade gold. Uh, you know, Visible gold produces uh, flashy assays. There's about 700,000 ounces uh, already outlined of uh, you know, two grams per ton open pitable, but it's a 65-kilometer district. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're only tested a fraction of it. There's geochem all over the place saying the whole area has gold potential. Right now, they're working on a zone. Uh, it's about two and a half kilometers long, the Jubilee to George Murphy with the Richard zone in the middle. They finally are getting serious. They have three rigs working right now, 25,000 meters uh, at work, most of it dedicated to stitching together these three zones. Uh, They just put out some more results today, one of the highest grade holds, yet it's showing that the grade increases at depth where these quartz veins are converging. They hope to have 
a maiden resource estimate for this part of the project out in the third quarter of this year, and that should clear them through the one million ounce uh, threshold because the market wants to see your project has million ounce plus potential. So this one at the current gold price, this story, this emerging district is happening. It is uh, the kind of thing that you can buy now. And again, not worry if gold's going to go down a hundred or two hundred bucks or praying that it goes to $2,000 to make this thing worthwhile. This is a story that you can buy right now, regardless of what gold does. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I see, for example, 47 meters of 10.6 grams was the headline number in today's press release. Very impressive. But it's the scale of this thing, isn't it, John? I mean, you, you see this is very, very large uh, structures uh, and, yeah, and I mean, the scale. The, the, the news releases themselves up. You know, they got the flashy numbers and all that, but the market's become kind of used to this. So this is one where paying attention to the news releases isn't that important unless something Mm -hmm. new and different shows up, such as they take this thing deeper and come up with Mm -hmm. bigger, bigger, bigger numbers. Uh, This is one of just waiting for them to do the job, deliver that resource estimate. And if gold does start trending higher, well, as you mentioned earlier, that's icing on the cake. That will bring new audiences into this sector because we are still starved for an audience. uh, Mm -hmm, For sure. uh, So uh, that's why I like ones like that. They got the ounces in the ground already. They're building them to, through critical mass, and it's got the grade that says, well, you don't need a higher gold price, but if you get a higher gold price, well, that just makes it so much the better. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, those are two great ideas, John. I want to thank you very much for spending a bit of time with us today. Uh, we'll have to pick your brain for some more in the future. You certainly do come up with some novel ideas, too. Very interesting, and uh, of course, that's what makes your work valuable. Uh, doing what other people don't necessarily uh, see. So thank you so much for being with us, John, and we'll uh, have you on again sometime, hopefully. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to break now, and uh, Dr. Quentin Henning will be with us to talk about Irving Resources. That's also another very exciting, unusual, different kind of a story, but I think with lots of upside potential. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He is here today to talk about the exploration progress being made by Irving Resources, which company he serves as a director and technical advisor, focusing on the company's very exciting exploration projects in Japan. Irving trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol IRV. You can buy it down here in the States under the symbol IRV. RF, as I have uh, purchased it that way, uh, 54.8 million shares outstanding, recently trading at about $3 U.S. money, giving it a market cap of $164 million in U.S. funds. Irving is another company that uh, Dr. Henning's years of experience as an out-of-the-box thinking geologist has led him to. It is a most exciting story that is a recommendation in my newsletter, and I'm proud to say that Irving is also a sponsor to this show. Irving's primary focus is on gold exploration in Japan, and as with most of Dr. Henning's projects, the targets being explored in Japan have a novel aspect to them, that have kept them from the view of exploration geologists who are more confined to regurgitating answers they learned from their uh, college professors. Well, that personal trait of Dr. Henning has him discovering projects that uh, most others miss, uh, and that's why it's such a privilege and always an honor and always exciting to have him on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Henning. Absolutely, Jay. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm glad we can catch up. I know your your schedule is extremely uh, tight these days. I believe I'm talking to you um, from Lima, Peru today. You're in Lima, Peru. I'm here in New York. Uh, Quentin, the last time that you were on the show to talk about Irving was November 5th, just after Irving released drill results from the Omu Center project in Japan, and you were really pleased with the fact that seven out of eight holes drilled were successful in hitting gold-bearing veins. And you noted that the odds of hitting gold-bearing veins in an epithermal system like this is more like 1 out of 10 rather than 7 out of 8. What does the success, uh, your success rate tell you? Is it suggesting that you have eagle-eyed drillers, or does it say something about the system itself? Uh, I believe it says something about the system itself. Uh, OMU, which is the project we have uh, and is really our main focus. It's in Hokkaido. Uh, it's a vast uh, area. It's about uh, almost 200 square kilometers. And we have multiple hot spring centers within this uh, property. So the Omu Center, which you mentioned that we discussed in November, uh, we drilled that first. We drilled that from about March until July last year. And like you said, we were very successful. We hit veins in seven out of eight drill holes. Uh, we moved on to another target at the Omu property. Uh, it's called Omui. Mm-hmm. Uh, Omui is a historic mine site. There was a small uh, shaft and a little bit of production, but uh, we we drill tested uh, the shallow environment as well as putting in one deep hole that was quite successful, and we announced those results uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And um, what did you find from those results? I mean, were they? Is it a similar, very similar projects, both of them? I guess, right? Yes, look, uh, we've uh, basically got similar hot spring systems, uh, you know, across the property, and they're all uh, apparently underlain by, you know, an extensive vein system, uh, you know, to sort of better answer your question. Um, we are seeing multiple veins in most of these drill holes. Uh, I think all but one of our holes in this program, and we actually, uh, you know, all of them hit veins. In fact, the deep hole, which we targeted, for the boiling zone, you know, the deeper level in the system, that one encountered something like 
uh, 21 veins in total. So it's wow. very, very promising. Yeah, we were very encouraged by that. All right. Well, some of the uh, naysayers of uh, your projects point out that the veins are very narrow. Uh, and they're saying, well, you know, they're high grade, but they're very narrow and they're uh, steeply dipping and you've got to go deep underground to get them. Uh, I, I guess at Omoy, it's uh, actually, it comes right up to surface, but, but, uh, I would like you to discuss the business model that you have there for your Japanese projects because they are somewhat novel and, um, actually there's, there's an aspect to it that makes it, uh, you know, what might be true in some locations, not necessarily true with your Japanese locations. Could you talk about the business model and why narrow veins, uh, in this case, may not be such a problem? Certainly. Look, uh, Kiko Levinson and I, uh, when we started Irving, we went to visit, <coughs> excuse me, the Hishikari mine in uh, Kyushu. Hishikari is quite a famous epithermal mine. It's, you know, got a vein network similar to what we're discussing here, multiple veins in a small area. Uh, average vein width is about a half a meter. Most people don't know that. Uh, you know, people think these things are multimeter veins and, you know, there's, uh, but, but that's not the case. Okay. Uh, it, so what we learned, uh, really what we focused the company on is that processing this stuff in Japan is not about milling on site, like in a conventional sense, you know, building a mill, uh, you know, investing a huge amount of capital, you know, for the equipment and, and site development. This is about selling material as smelter flux. Okay, so uh, smelters, uh, there's, uh, you know, like 12, 15 very large smelters in Japan, all handling base metals. They all require a certain amount of silica every year on the order of, you know, say 100, 100 to a few hundred thousand tons of silica. Uh, during the smelting process, the, the silica melts along with the base metal sulfides. And in doing so, the, the gold and silver actually come out and they go into the base metal um, as, as the material is heated. That sinks to the bottom of the smelter chamber, and then they tap the metal off. And then through the electrolytic process, you know, the, the final refining of metal, they actually recover the gold and silver. All right, so what does this mean? Well, it means that we're really focused on finding... Uh, smelter flux, you know, to, to a degree. I mean, that's that's what we're looking for. We're looking for silica-rich rock, but we also want the, that, you know, important gold and silver uh, component. Uh, yes, we are chasing gold and silver. We're not doing this just to find silica. Uh, we are we are focused on finding d- deposits, you know, similar to Hishikari. Now, in Japan, they've mined like this for, for many years. Um, they've used ores for smel- smelter flux, for quite some time, uh, you know, here recently the industry is kind of reduced down to just uh, just one or two operating gold mines that produce, you know, smelter flux. But we're trying to revitalize this industry in Japan, and we're doing it through this exploration. So, uh, you know, we we have you know contacted a number of the Japanese mining houses. They're all aware of this project. And we, we know that we can integrate the products we're finding, this uh, this high silica quartz veining, uh, with the smelter industry in Japan. It's low and deleterious elements. It's got a very nice gold and silver uh, component, so the smelters absolutely love that. Uh, you know, the other thing is, think about mining. If the wall rocks are heavily silicified like we're seeing, they really don't have a huge impact, okay? The... the um, 
the material is still sufficient, you know, in silica to go through a smelter. All right, so this is an absolutely wonderful situation. You know, people scratch their head and they wonder, you know, how are you going to mine these things? Well, you can actually take some dilution because the wall rock is silicified. And not only that, it does carry, look, there's low-level gold, you know, say grammar to gold away from the veins disseminated in the wall rock. So it's not just, oh, it's barren. Uh, the other thing is the silica itself has a value. Okay, so silica is probably valued on the order of $50 per ton. Uh, U.S., you know, which is basically a gram gold equivalent, all right? So so when you start putting the economics together, you know, and we know that we don't have to build a mill. We know that we don't have to process, you know, conventionally. And we know that the smelters will pay, say, 90 to 95% of the value of the gold and silver, as well as for the silica itself. This is a great business model. Mm-hmm. Have you, uh, in the Hishikari project, do you have any sense of the profitability of that project? Uh, if you're looking to, to set up something similar to that, do you have do you have any idea of that, or is that just private information? Uh, look, Sumitomo Metal Mining operates Hishikari. Uh, I think they keep numbers fairly close to the best, like, you know. But uh, I do know that the costs are quite low. We visited Hishikari a few years ago. Um, the like I said, the average vein width is about 0.5 meters. Uh, they do upgrade the material when they mine it and bring it up, up you know, up above uh, gr- into the uh, ground. Uh, <clears throat> sort it and sort it. They have optical sorters, believe it or not. Uh, so they, they product that's that's pretty robust grade. You know, the the low grade might grade 18 grams per ton or so. The higher grade probably runs 30 to 40 grams, and I know that uh, I know that their costs are are probably all in you know less well less than 500 dollars per ounce. Wow, that's that's uh, yeah. Well, of course you have a lot of work to do now, and it, um, you, you mentioned the boiling point. Do you expect when you get down closer to that boiling point that you're, that the grades might be different, or that the the geometry of the deposit might be different, or or what? What are you expecting? You, you, you know what we we expect at that point is the the veins to to become more consistent. A lot of what we see up near surface is really the material that's been flushed up, you know, during eruptive events and stuff like this. Once we get down into the boiling zone, uh, we're seeing seeing banded veins, you know, more organized veins. And, uh, you know, we'll call it more uh, consistent type deposits. Um, and those should extend. So just to give people a perspective, the top of the boiling zone is about 350 meters below the current surface. Uh-huh. And it should extend, say, another four or 500 meters below that. So we're really just playing around in the top of the system at this point. Uh, but it's delightful to see these uh, wonderful banded veins pop up just like we had hoped. Uh, we're seeing you know, very good grades. In fact, some of them have uh, good grades in silver as well. Yeah, at Hishikari, are they mining down around the the boiling zone? That's correct. the The tops of the veins at Hishikari are on the order of maybe two or two hundred to two hundred fifty meters below surface, uh-huh. and then they mine them down vertically. You know, anywhere from say three or three or four hundred meters below that. So, yes, it's a very similar situation. Um, what so looking forward to 2020? What do you expect uh, investors should be watching for? A, a constant uh, drill results is that is that one thing? And um, you know what what might we expect this year? What might be some of the drivers for the for the share price? Absolutely, look, drilling is uh, first and foremost. At, at Omu, we're t- we're back at Omu Center right now. Uh, where I think we've just completed the second hole. 
Uh, we're going to keep drilling up until maybe April, maybe early May at Omu Center. And then we're going to go back to Omu, where, where we drill that deep hole, and we're going to start uh, offsetting that, that deep first drill success we had there. Um, beyond that, we do hope to uh, drill test up at Hokurio, which is another target on the property uh, later this year. Uh, so we have lots of drilling coming up, um, but people should also be aware that we have other properties across Japan. And, you know, through the monies that uh, Newmont has invested, we are working towards uh, various, uh, you know, alliance properties, we'll call it, that we're putting together. And, you know, hopefully we'll get, be able to get some news out about, about those over the next few months. Uh, Quentin, this is a very, very unusual project in, in, in ways you've just discussed. What do you, wh- do you, will there be the sort of traditional uh, step-by-step process towards uh, economics, uh, establishing economics, or how do you see this moving forward? You know, there will be. I mean, it, it, every mine needs, uh, you know, to be studied thoroughly before you start investing money. But in this case, you know, the one benefit we have, is that, uh, you know, you're not looking at investing a huge amount of capital into processing, things like that. So it's it's a lot simpler exercise to evaluate, uh, you know, say putting decline in and, uh, you know, starting to access from underground. Um, I would say, you know, looking at the history of Hishikari, it's, uh, it's a fairly straightforward process in Japan. You know, any perceptions that permitting is... You know, uh, a long endeavor in Japan, those are incorrect. Uh, you know, the Japanese actually have a very well structured system for, for getting permits. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, this discovery, uh, you know, with given the demand in the smelter industry, mm-hmm. I think this thing will move forward fairly steadily. Wow. Wonderful. I noticed that since we last spoke, both Newmont, uh, you just alluded to Newmont, put more money into the into uh, Irving. Eric Sprott as well. Um, can, how well funded are you to go through 2020? You know, we have, uh, you know, effectively all the funding we need for 2020 here, you know, and that includes our alliance work that we're doing with Newmont. Um, so we're in, in very good position. Uh, Newmont first came in in April of last year. Uh, with the initial investment, it was six million U.S., roughly eight million Canadian. This year, uh, they had the right to put in another three. They actually put in more. They put in four, uh, four U.S., which is uh, what about five in a bit uh, Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that combined with uh, say eight or nine that we had in the bank already uh, gives us uh, sufficient cash for this year. Um, we do have. Uh, we signed an MOU with Sumitomo Corporation uh-huh. last September. Of course, Newman, Newmont and Sumitomo have worked together for years, you know, and that might result in in some uh, some synergies too. We're we're uh, talking with the guys, and you know, hopefully by later this year we'll we'll be able to announce something there. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, your share structure, which is you know, as I noted, it's only about fifty five million shares out, and and those are very tightly held because you have the likes of uh, of Newmont. Uh, Eric Sprott, and I think you mentioned the last time we spoke that management has a big chunk of shares. So the, the float is very tight on this one, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's incredibly tight. You know, it, the company started from the sale of Gold Canyon a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've, you know, Keith and I kept it very tight. We, uh, you know, obviously we had asked Eric to join us early on, help put the initial money in. Uh, but, you know, we focused our efforts on bringing Newmont in about what about uh, 12 months ago mm-hmm. and uh, you know we we're in a position where uh, we can move forward without a lot of the hassles and 
dilution uh, that a lot of juniors face. Yeah. Well, boy, that is really important for early shareholders uh, like myself. Anything else you'd like to share with us today, um, Quentin? You know, just uh, just keep an eye on our work outside of OMU. I mean, OMU is very important, don't get me wrong, and we have lots of great news there, but uh, I urge people to just keep an eye on other endeavors we're working on. Other endeavors across Japan in an effort to bring back mining in a major way, and you've got major companies apparently very interested in what you're doing. So, I mean, I, I'm very excited about this story. I want to thank you so much, Quentin, for spending your time with us again to, to uh, let our listeners know all about Irving. So thank you very much for being with us again. Sure thing, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with us to talk about a recent essay posted at Gold Money titled Coronavirus and Credit, A Perfect Storm. Very important information from Alistair, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what has been considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to uh, be with you once again. I'm uh, really happy to have Alistair McLeod with us once again. He's, uh, I guess, next to, uh, next to Michael Oliver, he's probably the most frequent guest because I just really value uh, what he has to say. Uh, I think he sees the underlying dynamics. You know, most of the time when you're watching mainstream television or radio or whatever, the media is going to give you the Keynesian version of, of, uh, of what's happening. And uh, the Keynesian model is highly flawed in my view and Alistair's view and most everybody that follows the Austrian School of Economics believes that it's out of touch with reality, the way the world really works. And Alistair really digs down into below the surface and provides us with an understanding of what is actually driving the markets. And that is helpful because if you understand that, uh, you're in a better position to see what's coming. Thanks for joining me again today, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. It's always good to have you with me. And, you know, uh, I believe it's every Thursday uh, that you publish your essays. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Every Thursday at Gold Money. So people can go to goldmoney.com. And, uh, you know, it's a must-read from my perspective to try to keep up with things. And, you know, we have Alistair on about once a month. 
uh, could really have him on every week, honestly, because every week there's uh, his essays are are well worth uh, spending time on and, and learning to understand them. Well, Alistair, um, we titled today's show after your February 13th article titled Coronavirus and Credit, A Perfect Storm. And, you know, you've been warning that the uh, the existence of this credit cycle, it's getting long in the tooth and it's it's very vulnerable. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, it, it a lot of bad things could happen. The, the, the credit cycle coming to an end, and usually when it does, because it is a credit bubble, really. It's not based on uh, on natural market forces, but rather Keynesian economics pumps these bubbles up, uh, and then you have a you know a very a very sad ending to it. Usually, a very cataclysmic ending sometimes. Um, so, what do you see? Could you talk to us a little bit about what you see, why the credit cycle itself, let alone the coronavirus, uh, is, in, is in some trouble? Well, the credit cycle, um, the expansionary phase, was really coming to an end. We've seen that with statistics coming out showing that the global economy is slowing. It's not just uh, uh, China um, or Germany, um, but it's everywhere else. I mean, or virtually every statistic which actually comes out of the private sector rather than out of government has shown that the economy's uh, everywhere have been slowing down. And most notably, uh, the um, uh, international trade has uh, almost run into a brick wall. I mean, we see things like the Baltic Dry Index just completely collapsing, you know, f- uh, freight figures going way down and so on. So um, international trade really has run into a brick wall. Now, the reason for it is really um, twofold. Uh, you've got a combination of the credit cycle, which has run up to its peak, um, and bankers are becoming cautious. So they're tending not to lend money to uh, the small and medium-sized companies in, in uh, say, America. The same is true in the, the UK and also Europe because they see risk. So uh, having been sort of pushing people to borrow, they're now Mm -hmm. sort of drawing in their horns. And this has coincided with President Trump's uh, tariff war against China. And if you take the combination of these two events, guess what? We're back in 1929 when the Glass-Steagall Act was introduced at the end of October 1929. And that was the month when Wall Street started its crash. So Mm -hmm. we have a a very disturbing similarity with this situation. So Mm -hmm. without the coronavirus, we are heading for a slump. And that's the only way to describe it. All right. Market crash and slump. Well, speaking of market crash, we had the Dow Jones was down over a thousand yesterday uh, with about 20 minutes left in today's trading. It's down 880. Uh, You talked in your article about a sudden collapse. Um, and, you know, unlike uh, the kind of a scenario where you might have some time to prepare for it, uh, why do you see this as, I mean, do you think this is the beginning of something very serious here the last couple of days uh, yes, in, I do. In, in the financial markets? Y- yes, I do. I mean, the coronavirus, um, if you like, it gives us such a clean indicator of timing. Um, it is disastrous. It has shut down the chi- Chinese economy. Um, it is shutting down economies elsewhere, or if it hasn't already, it will be. I mean, places like Korea, the motor manufacturers have um, stopped the production lines because they haven't got vital Chinese components from their supply chain. The same is true of almost every motor manufacturer. 
almost every electronics uh, manufacturer relies on components from China. I mean, look at Apple, for example. So, you know, all these businesses are suddenly having to grind to a halt. And what does this do to everybody's GDP? Well, <laughs> you know, it contracts. My and goodness. so not only do we have the, the setup for a repeat of 1929, but we have this coronavirus coming at precisely the point when the whole thing is due to descend into a slump anyway. Yeah. Now, the, the thing that's so important about this is to realize that the Fed has um, it's effectively caught with its trousers down because what they have done is they have mispriced the market. And uh, let me describe it this way. If you bear in mind that uh, there is a time preference for a 10-year bond, and that is probably around about 2%, we have an official rate of inflation of around about 2%. But if you go to the independent analysts, the figure is more like 10%. So mm -hmm. what should... What should the 10-year Treasury bond yield? Well, yeah. if you've got inflation running at 10% and you have got a time preference value in there, which we can't really determine, but mm -hmm. let's say it's around about 1% or 2%, then mm -hmm. that should be yielding at least 10%, maybe mm -hmm. 11%. So that it should be priced with the current indicated coupon of about 1.37, I think it is. Mm -hmm. That should be priced um, at under half, under 50 I mean, that is how mispriced the market has become. Mm -hmm. Now, sooner or later, uh, the market will reassert itself because this, you know, this distortion cannot go, go on forever. It never does. Mm -hmm. And when the market reasserts itself, just think, if you're going to collapse the value of uh, U.S. Treasury debt, what does that do to the stock market? What does it do to every form of uh, financial asset? I mean, it just cuts the feet from under it. And mm -hmm. at the same time, the foreigners who are overweight in dollars are going to turn sellers of the dollars. You've got the hedge funds who have been uh, buying dollars and selling uh, um, uh, euros in order to strip the rate differential. Most. Mm -hmm. uh, They've been doing it through through FX swaps, which means that the banks have do, been doing it for them. But it amounts to the same thing. So I don't know. You've got probably about four trillion of um, uh, liquidity, if you like, uh, in the foreigners' hands. You've probably got about another four trillion of swaps, uh, of FX swaps related uh, bull positions in the dollar. You have got nineteen and a half trillion dollars worth of securities, which are not bank balances, owned by foreigners on top. Now, I mean, they they own more dollars than the U.S. GDP. So we have this situation where they're certainly not going to be buying any more debt because they've got no need to do it. Because with the global economy contracting, you don't need the sort of dollar balances that you thought you might have to have yesterday. So you're descaling on that. Uh, and consequently, um, you know, foreigners are going to turn sellers and they will drive the dollar down. At the moment, nobody really understands this, and mm -hmm. they think the safe haven is to go and buy U.S. Treasuries, and that is why the yield on U.S. Treasuries has collapsed. But it's wrong. That is actually where the risk is, and as soon as people realize it, then I'm afraid that the dollar is in for a collapse. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a collapse. Um, it's an initial effect, if you like, against the euro and against the yen in particular, which uh, is where all the unwinding is likely to occur. There will also be unwinding from other 
uh, nations. Uh, you know, the Chinese, for example, are likely to start drawing down their debt more aggressively. Uh, the Japanese will probably be forced to draw down as well. I mean, it's one thing to hold on to U.S. Treasuries while the dollar is rising. Mm -hmm. But when the price of U.S. Treasuries is going down and dollars are going down with it, as a mm -hmm. foreigner, you're getting hit twice. So yeah. what do you do? You just get out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that is, I think, the problem that is going to be ahead of us because of the overpricing and this dramatic overpricing of U.S. Treasury debt. Well, well you were talking about the speculators of the currency carry trade uh, folks and, uh, and how they were stripping the, uh, the difference in rates, uh, thinking there was no risk there. But uh, that plays in also to the repo markets, I believe, uh, the, the repo problems that we've had in the repo markets recently. Could you comment on that, perhaps? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, the repo problem has arisen because uh, the uh, uh, prime brokers have had to carry more uh, U.S. Uh, um, T-bills and uh, uh, bond coupon uh -huh. debt. Um, and at the same time, uh, these uh, hedge funds have been uh, taking out their foreign exchange swap positions mm -hmm. in increasing quantities. And what you don't have is you don't have foreigners buying, you know, sort of recycling their dollar, you know, the dollars from their, uh, you know, their, their exports into America. They're not recycling that those anymore into the market. So into the money market. So what you have got is you've got a shortage uh, created by the absence of this recycling on the one hand mm -hmm. and on the other hand you have got the sort of if you like the increased domestic demand for dollars uh, in the market to finance these uh, uh, foreign exchange swap positions and also the uh, uh, larger and accumulating inventory of US Treasury debt being issued by the government um, uh, you know and the banks just can't take it anymore and that is why you have the spike in the repo rate back in September. And what that is telling us is that the right interest rate in US money markets is actually far higher than the current level. Mm -hmm. The Fed is having to intervene to keep it down. So we have got a liquidity crisis, which is not happening courtesy of the Fed printing money. And this is a printing money. I mean, talking about printing money, that was before the coronavirus. I mean, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is going to lead to so much more printing money. And so you can see that there's a tsunami of money going to be printed, not mm -hmm. just by the Americans, but by the Europeans, by the mm -hmm. Japanese, by the Brits, by the Swiss, by anyone with a decent currency. They're going to be issuing it in enormous quantities at the same time. So we're going to have a tsunami of money printing, and that is why gold has taken off. Mm -hmm. Well, for sure. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, the problems of the trade war before this came up, and now the, the virus uh, with uh, manufacturing shutting down and uh, supply chains interfered with. Uh, prices are likely to go up because of shortages, I would imagine, which then uh, would likely trigger a, a demand for higher rates when people lend their money uh, to uh, to the treasury, right? And so, and so the Fed will then have to pump more and more, faster and faster, to try to keep the rates down. Uh, you also have the rest of the world have, still have lower rates than the U.S. So I imagine there are people trying to find some sort of positive yield. Uh, money flows into the U.S. Yet is that still going on? I suppose. 
Well, yes. I mean, I, I think the way to describe the problem uh, in, in America is there will mm-hmm. only be one buyer of U.S. Treasury debt, and that's uh-huh. the Fed. Yeah. And that is the Fed. There's no other buyer. Now, they, ha- they will have the same problem uh, in Europe. Um, the ECB will be the only buyer of uh, uh, Italian debt, Spanish debt, French debt. Um, and uh, the same in Japan. I mean, well, Japan is slightly different because people actually save in Japan. So yeah. <laughs> they may not be in quite the same difficulties yeah. as yeah. I can see rising in America, which, whose, whose savers, the only savings that Americans do, and it's the same with the Brits, uh, is, is enforced through corporate pension schemes which mm-hmm. incidentally are all in deficit and, uh, you know, it's a horrible muddle. But anyway, put that mm-hmm. to one side. I mean, nobody saves and everybody lives paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So the only source of uh, money to uh, cover government deficits is basically by uh, either raw printing by the central bank or by the expansion of bank credit. And what is happening in the repo market tells us that the banks can't expand bank credit uh, uh, to, to absorb all that debt anymore without cutting out the RV funds, the relative value hedge funds, um, and causing a run on the dollar. So whichever way, I think the whole, you know, the whole system has got backed into a corner. Yeah. So your reading is the repo situation is still, is still problematic as nothing has been solved there. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting worse, if anything. Yeah, it's still problematic. And, you know, I occasionally look at uh, the numbers coming out of the Fed on that. And, you know, I mean, daily, you're looking at sort of averaging about 50 billion, um, you know, either being rolled or extended or whatever. And I think uh, this morning, it was somewhat more, you know, like 70. So, um, yeah, no, that's that's continuing to be a problem. And it is going to, I mean, it may not get worse. But if it doesn't get worse, it'll be because the banks are refusing to uh, uh, extend facilities in the FS, FX swap market. Now, if they do that, then you can see that hedge funds are going to have to start unwinding their positions. Mm-hmm. And not only unwinding their positions, because it means they've got to sell their dollars. Um, yeah. Because that is the unwind, if you like. It's sell mm. dollars by euros or sell dollars by yen. Mm-hmm. And uh, consequently, at that stage, the dollar will turn. And the thing that's fascinating about it is that everybody I talk to is convinced that foreigners need dollars. Absolutely. And that's what, that's everybody so I talk wrong. to, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. it's the so same wrong. Idea. Yeah, but this is this is the crazy world we live in because we have a generation of investment managers who only know an inflationary environment. They're all Keynesians and they're completely with the Fed on this. They don't realize the danger that they face. It, it's an extraordinary situation. Well, Alistair, I think you're probably, you and I are more or less the same age, so you would remember the 1980, 1981, um, and, the, and the high inflation in the U.S. I think you had something in the U.K. too yep. uh, in those days. And, I mean, our first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage here in New York City. Uh, you you know, um, so I remember the time when um, when interest rates rose be- at, along with inflation and people just, they can't get their heads around that, I guess, because they haven't lived through it. Uh, but you were su- suggesting there that, that, you know, we are ready before the coronavirus came along and that we were looking at something, you know, in, in many ways comparable to 1929 with the, at the end of the credit cycle and a trade war at the same time. Uh, and in your, in your, uh, February 13th article, you referred to John Law's Mississippi company, The Bubble, that took place then 300 years ago. 
Now you seem to be suggesting that we may be coming up on something as significant as that. That is a very good, uh, yeah, I was sort of scanning for um, a simile, if you like, to the uh-huh. current situation. And uh-huh. it, it seemed to me that John Law's uh, Mississippi scheme was a very, very good simile, because basically he, was, he did exactly what the central banks are doing today. Mm-hmm. He printed money to puff up the market so that he could merge his Banque Royale with uh, the Mississippi Company. It wasn't called that. It was, um, you know, something in French, something to yes. do with the Indies or whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. to, he, he was due to merge the two, and he needed to get the share price up. So mm-hmm. what, he, what did he do? He printed money to buy shares in the market. And incidentally, that created an inflation of food prices, which combined with a bad harvest, um, you know, was not a very good thing. Uh, we're talking about uh, late 1719. Uh, his currency started losing purchasing power in, in around about November, December 1719. The merger went ahead uh, on the 28th of February 1720. Uh, the king sold 100,000 shares at 9,000 livres to be paid out in stage payments. But that was, if you like, the thing that rang the bell. That was the coronavirus. It was mm-hmm. a financial financial event, if you like, a black swan, which mm-hmm. hit the market. And the, the way it worked was that the paper currency, his livre, started collapsing first. And the share, shares then started collapsing as well. So that by September 1720, the shares had fallen from something like 11 to 12,000 livres a share down to 2 to 3,000 livres a share. Wow. Wow. But the livre, which we're pricing it in, was worthless. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> in effect, in effect uh, you, you lost everything. Uh, if you if if you you know if you'd bought into the scheme, and I just see so many similarities with what's happening today on a global scale that, quite frankly, I think it's really rather terrifying. Yeah, it it certainly seems to be uh, another another essay that you wrote just very recently, more recently. Um, I guess it it was suggesting that this whole thing could lead back to a gold standard. Uh, with the with two minutes left, would you care to comment on that? Yes, and, and, then, uh, and then suggest that people go to goldmoney.com and read the article. Absolutely. Um, th- what I was suggesting is that because the collapse is likely to be so much quicker than I thought before, mm-hmm. uh, I think that some nations, and I think this is China, I think it's Russia, some Asian states perhaps, will be in a position to say, well, we've got to save our currency, and the only way we can do it is link it to gold. Uh Um, So some sort of gold standard. I think uh, conceptually it will be very difficult for the Americans to come around to this view for two two reasons. Firstly, they've spent the last 40 years damning gold, calling it bedrock or whatever. Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, you know, the, the, the Fed is driven by Keynesians who do not understand prices. They do not understand economics. They understand the Keynesian version, which is John Law's version. Uh-huh. To get that intellectual switch round to an understanding is going to require something which I cannot foresee at the moment. Right. But what we could do is if we see one or two major players like China in particular, uh, if they go back onto a gold standard of some sort, then that will encourage other countries to do the same, if only to stabilize their currencies. Right, right. So they may have to, the Keynesians may have to learn their lessons the hard way. Of course, all of the rest of us may uh, have to do some suffering along the way as well. 
Um, I'm, but, af- I'm afraid so. But, yeah. you know, th- so the question is, will they learn the lesson? I mean, <laughs> I'm not well, sure. In due course, they, they for some, I, I imagine they will. But, uh, you know, as Keynes said, and we don't quote him very often, but in the long run, we're all dead. So anyway, uh, in the long run, our show is over already. Alistair, thank you so much for being with us once again. Uh, always, always refreshing. Well, not always the topics we want to hear. It certainly isn't the kind of thing that we want to that we want to that we want to focus on except when we have to and so i think it is time now watching the uh, dow go down as it is we've got to pay some attention to what's going on thank you very much alistair for helping us do that once again well, folks uh, that is all the time we have this week dan oliver will be with me next week uh he's going to talk about um, uh, the thoughts of uh, vladimir lenin and how they've crept into the american political landscape. Uh, not a very hot big topic either, but I think one that's necessary. Quentin Henning will be with me as well to talk about Noble Resources, and Michael Oliver will be back next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling underway and its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu Gold Project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world not owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com.